Morning, everyone. I'm thinking, you know, that uh, if we surveyed everyone in the room today, and if we asked everyone in the room today the question, do you believe in Jesus? The vast majority of us, perhaps every single one of us, would answer yes. That's why we're here. We, we believe in Jesus. It's a bit of a silly question really to ask people in church. You need to ask that question out there, not in here. Of course we believe in Jesus. But what does that mean? What does it mean to say, I believe in Jesus? What should it mean? See, Jesus himself warned that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Heaven. Not everyone who says, according to Jesus, I believe in Jesus, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what should I believe in Jesus mean? That's what we're thinking about together today from James chapter 2. What should it mean when someone says, I believe in Jesus? There was confusion about that statement among the Christians that uh, James was first writing to, and that, can, that confusion continues even today. And you know what? If James were here this morning uh, physically, there's no way James would have bothered with a survey. James wouldn't be much interested, I would think, in hearing people say, I believe in Jesus. James would be far more interested in watching the way those same people lived. Because as we've been seeing in this letter, James measures authenticity by action. What should it mean to say, I believe in Jesus? It ought to mean a changed, obedient, loving life. How about we pray and ask God to help us as we come to his word now. Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for this word before us this morning. And it's our prayer, Father, that you would show us what true faith, genuine faith in Jesus ought to be. Once more, Father, we pray that you'd humble us before your word, help us to not merely hear it, but to do it, and help us as we deal with these serious things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point one on your outline, and let's have a look at verse 14 of uh, James chapter 2, verse uh, 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a man claims to have faith that has no deeds. Can such faith save him? No beating around the bush with James. Straight up he confronts us with the issue. Is it possible to have saving faith without deeds? Is it possible to have a faith that saves you, a faith that gets you into heaven without deeds? Is it possible to believe in Jesus, but for that belief, to have no impact on your living? That's the issue. That's the question. And it's a question really that arises uh, immediately out of what James has been writing. This is not a new topic that James is beginning now in our passage this morning. This is a continuation of the same topic. This is a question addressed to someone who has heard James' command to be doers of the word... This is the question addressed to someone who has heard James' command to look after orphans and widows in their distress. 
They've heard James' command to not show favoritism but to love their neighbour as themselves. They've heard all that, but their response is to reject James' commands. To reject James' commands on the grounds that they have faith. They believe in Jesus. And that is enough. See, they claim to have faith in Jesus. They claim to believe in Jesus, but they're not all that interested in the sort of obedience that James has been commanding. They're not all, not, not all that interested, really, in the sort of love that James is commanding. I don't want to be too troubled about loving my neighbour. I don't want to be too troubled about looking after orphans and widows in their distress. I just want to focus on believing in Jesus. And so James tackles it head on. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Such deedless faith is fake faith. Deedless faith is fake faith. That's what James is saying. It's fake faith. It is not saving faith. Actions speak louder than words is really what James is saying. Claiming to have faith means nothing if that faith is not real and real faith is seen in action, in obedience. That warning from Jesus I mentioned uh, earlier, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's in Matthew 7. That's the warning that James echoes here in verse 14, isn't it? It's a call for obedience. It's a call to be doers of the word. It's a call to keep the royal law we thought about last time. It's a warning against fake, deedless faith. And James, in fact, has particular deeds in mind. James has particular action in mind. And it's confronting... And it's challenging. Have a look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? So here is James's picture of deedless, fake faith. It's a confronting picture. It's not a picture I think we should move on from too quickly because it's a picture that I suspect we often find ourselves in. A brother or a sister, poorly clothed, lacking in daily food. Jesus' command to us, love your neighbour as yourself. Pursue for your neighbour what you pursue for yourself. But what would fake faith look like in this situation? Well, no action, no obedience to Jesus, no love. The only response is, go, I wish you well. It's even perhaps a little worse than that. The ESV translates the response, go in peace, which is a common biblical blessing. Enjoy the peace of God's blessing. Reminds me of the story that Jesus told about the man who'd been beaten up on the road to Jericho, robbed, stripped, beaten, left half dead. Remember what happens? The priest comes by and religiously passes by on the other side of the road. 
The Levite comes by, but religiously passes by on the other side of the road. They do nothing. Go in peace. Enjoy the peace of God's blessing. Sounds so religious, so spiritual. Enjoy the peace of God's blessing. Maybe for us the response might be, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for that situation. We don't really mean it. It's just we've got nothing else to say, really. And the words sound spiritual, but really they're just a cover. They're just a cynical disguise for a lack of action, a lack of love. Fake, deedless faith is what James is confronting today. The Apostle Paul, he expresses it like this in Galatians chapter 5, excuse me. In uh, Galatians 5 verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Or the Apostle John writes it like this in 1 John chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. The Apostle James in our passage passage expresses the same truth like this verse 17 faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action is dead fake see brothers and sisters we need to gaze carefully at this picture that james is painting for us and we need to prayerfully and humbly assess our hearts for the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And although the principle that James is teaching here about faith and obedience has broader and wider-reaching implications, more than just loving the poor, James himself would want us to stay here a while and ponder our response to the poor, to the believing poor especially. Is your faith accompanied by action when it comes to caring for poor and needy brothers and sisters? Do you love them as Christ has loved you? Do you love them as Christ has commanded you? See, are you genuinely generous to those in this church family who are needy? Do you give of your time, your possessions, your money, to people in this church family. If I were to ask you, and I'm not going to, but if I were to ask you, give me an example, could you? Those that we have sent from among us, out from DPC to serve Jesus around the world, out of your faith in Jesus, do you make sure that their needs are met? Are you generous to them? As we think about the Applebee's in Cambodia and Karen uh, in Ireland, uh, we think about uh, Ethiopia. 
Are we generous to them? Do you give away your money to missionaries and mission organisations? Mission organizations? And is your giving small change? Or is it shaped by the sacrificial love of Jesus who laid down his life for you? As we think about African enterprise and those pill bottles at home, if you put anything in, is it your loose change? Or are you going to make a serious investment? As we hear about the needs of pastors in the Philippines when Kelvin comes back from his trips, pastors in the Philippines who are seeking to survive on virtually nothing $20 a month, I think, was the last count we heard. Is your response, go in peace, be warm and filled, enjoy the peace of God's blessing, or is it to give? We've enjoyed the singing and the smiles of the Watoto Choir, but have you actually done anything to help them feed and clothe Ugandan orphans? Have you actually done anything? As disasters strike around the world, surely it should be Christians who enjoy the love and the generosity of Jesus. Surely it should be Christians who lead the way in generosity and love and genuine care for all people and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. With the disaster in Burma, how did you respond? Did you give You know, technology has enabled us to be aware of so much need around our world. Technology enables us to be able to contribute directly, financially, all around the world. But I wonder whether technology has also exposed our stinginess, our lovelessness. And you know what, don't be like me for a long, a long time. Don't be like me for a long time who was so concerned about doctrinal rightness that it really became a screen for my tight-fistedness. Don't be like me. I was so busy investigating where was the best place to give my money, I never actually got around to giving anything. That's a terrible deception, isn't it? Mums and dads, we teach our children to be wise with money and to save, but we should surely be equally diligent at training them in generosity and modelling it to them because generosity is wisdom. In uh, the book, a few years old now, called Affluenza, uh, Clive Hamilton wrote, In Australia, we do not lack the ability to solve poverty. We lack the will. And the richer we become as a a society, the more unwilling we are to sympathise with those at the bottom of the heap. That may be true of our nation, but it cannot be true of us as the Church of Jesus. It cannot be true of us who are people who believe in Jesus, who have been loved by Jesus. It cannot be true of people who, have been, who are such rich beneficiaries of the generosity of Jesus who became poor for us that we might be rich in him. So when's the last time you gave money away? What is your pattern of generosity to the poor? Because it's got to be a regular thing. It should be part of our lifestyle. It, it actually shouldn't be extraordinary. It should be very ordinary for the people of Jesus. Not empty spiritual slogans, but genuine love, faith 
in action. That's what James is calling for. That's what Jesus commands. Verse 18 of chapter 2 of James, someone will say, you have faith, but I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. See, faith without action, in particular generosity to the poor, is no faith at all, according to James. In fact, James goes so far as to describe deedless faith as the faith of demons. Verse 19, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The one God phrase, there may be actually a reference to what is called the Shema, which is the declaration in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, which goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was like a creed for Jewish believers. And the Christians James was originally writing to were mainly Jewish. And James seems to be saying, look, having your doctrine right is one thing, but if it doesn't affect your living, your loving, it's meaningless. Being able to recite the Shema, memorizing the Westminster Confession, being able to draw the six pictures of two ways to live, knowing all the answers at Bible study, all of that's well and good. But if such faith is not seen in your life and particularly in your love and mercy, what good is it? Even the demons have that sort of faith. And at least the demons shudder. At least their faith has some sort of impact on them, even if it is the fear of judgment. Faith without deeds, faith without love is fake. It is useless. It cannot save. It is not genuine. And James goes on to prove his point with two examples of genuine faith. Two examples of faith accompanied by action. Point two on your outline and verse 20 of chapter two. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. James there takes us back to the book of Genesis in the Old Testament and two incidents in the life of Abraham. The first incident is the one that James mentions second. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord Uh, Hopefully you remember and know in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord made Abraham a massive promise. The promise to bless the world through him and through his descendants. But Abraham, you see, at the time was an old man. He was childless. His wife Sarah was old. So old the Bible describes them as, as good as dead, which is pretty old. And so the Lord's promise to Abraham was astounding. Descendants. Blessing to the world through such descendants. That's Genesis chapter 12. Then in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord reasserts his promise. He, He restates his promise. He takes Abraham outside and he shows him all the stars. And the Lord said to Abraham, look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And so shall your offspring be. And Abraham, we're told, believed the Lord. 
had faith in the Lord's promise, trusted the Lord's promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by his faith in the Lord. And you see, though, it was saving faith. It was genuine faith. Abraham wasn't just saying, yeah, I believe. He really believed. We know that because it was accompanied by deeds, by action, by stunning obedience. And that's seen clearly in the other incident in Abraham's life that James refers to there. This time in Genesis chapter 22. In that chapter, chapter 22 of Genesis, we read of the Lord testing Abraham, asking Abraham incredibly to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son, the first of his descendants. Who could imagine how awful that command must have been to Abraham? And yet Abraham trusted the Lord. He genuinely trusted the Lord. He genuinely believed the Lord and his word. He was fully persuaded that God had power to do exactly what he had promised. And so he obeyed. He built the altar. He arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac. He laid his son Isaac on the altar. He took the knife in his hand. Genuine faith, fully persuaded that the God who promised him descendants would keep his promise. And then the angel of the Lord called to him, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket and he sacrificed the ram instead of his son. How does James describe it there in verse 22? His faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by his works. Abraham's faith was genuine. Abraham's actions fulfilled the declaration of righteousness, demonstrated the reality of his saving faith. Because you know what? So often we think that faith is merely some sort of agreement, some sort of Uh, intellectual agreement that something is true. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. But genuine biblical faith is so much more. It is always accompanied by action. And that's seen in James, the second example of genuine faith, this time Rahab, verse 25, chapter 2. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? It's another famous Bible moment, Joshua 2 this time. The nation of Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, crossed over into the promised land. They prepared to conquer the fortified city of Jericho. Spies were sent in and Rahab, a prostitute, gave them lodging. Even when the king of Jericho discovered their presence and ordered Rahab to hand them over, she hid the spies and sent her own people off in a wild goose chase. Why did she do so risky a thing, so costly a thing? Well, if you read Joshua 2, she talks to the spies. And as she speaks to the spies, it becomes clear that Rahab knew of the might and the majesty and the mercy of the Lord. She entrusted herself to him. She believed in him and her faith was genuine. It was accompanied by deeds. She protected the spies even at the cost of her own city. 
her faith was alive. She didn't just claim to trust the Lord, she really did. And of course that trust was seen in her life. Trust in the Lord is always like that. It's always like that because as James says in verse 26, faith without deeds, well that's just dead. In the words of verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. That's a troubling verse to lots of people, verse 24 there. Because for those of us who are Bible readers, it seems to be saying the opposite of what we might read somewhere else in the Bible, particularly in the writings of the Apostle Paul. For example, in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So that raises the question, does James disagree with Paul? Is the Bible inconsistent at such a critical point? And the answer is no, we've just got to read things in context. See, the Apostle Paul in his writings, very strong on being justified by faith alone. He was writing against people, Paul was writing against people who thought you could earn your way into the kingdom of God through obedience to the law, the Old Testament law, by doing works of the law. They taught that you could be justified, made right with God through observing the law. But of course, as Paul himself writes, because of our sin, that's an impossible path. In fact, rather than making us right, the law makes us aware of how far short we fall. And so we need God to make us right apart from the law. And he does this graciously and mercifully and fantastically through the atoning death of Jesus. Jesus who bore our sins so that we might be forgiven and made right. We are justified freely by his grace. It is through faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, believing in Jesus that we are saved. But see, what is the character of that faith, that belief, that trust? Is it merely an agreement with certain ideas? Do you merely hear the message and think, yeah, that sounds right? tick I'll believe that is it merely an intellectual thing or is it more and as we've seen that's where James enters the discussion if you like true saving faith true justifying faith is evidenced in obedience it's made complete by works because of course the one in whom we put our trust the one in whom we take shelter for forgiveness and atonement, the one who died to rescue us from our sins, Jesus, of course, is God's king. Our saviour, Jesus, is the Lord. And he saves us so that we might obey him. He saves us so that we might live for him. We are saved by grace for obedience. And in love, he gives us his Holy Spirit, graciously gives us his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who leads us into holiness. What a surprise. Obedience, good works. And if anyone does not have the Spirit, they don't belong to Christ. And if if anyone does have the Spirit, his presence is always evidenced by a changed and a changing life. A life of love, which is exactly what James is teaching us here. Which, as we've seen, is exactly what the Apostle Paul taught in Galatians 5. Remember, the only thing that counts is faith. It's expressing itself through love. 
As someone once wrote, though it's true we are justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. It's always accompanied by action. There is no disagreement between Paul and James. There's no inconsistency in the Bible here. It's all captured really well by the reformer Martin Luther, who was writing in the 1500s. It's a bit of a longer quote, but it's so great I'm going to read it. I hope I I can read it well enough that you capture it. Martin Luther writing in the 1500s, and he wrote these words. What a living, busy, active, powerful thing is faith. It's impossible that faith ever stop doing good. Faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it's asked, it's done them. It's always active. Whoever doesn't do such works is an unbeliever. He gropes and searches about him for faith and good works, but doesn't know what faith or good works are. Even so, he chatters on with a great many words about faith and good works. Faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Through faith, a person will do good to everyone without coercion willingly and happily he will serve everyone suffer everything for love for the love and praise of God who has shown him such grace it's a long quote but I think it's a great quote brothers and sisters the only thing that counts is faith working itself out in love faith without deeds is dead and so we need to be busy putting our faith to work We need to be especially busy in loving those brothers and sisters who are in need. We must never be simply satisfied with saying, go in peace, enjoy the peace of God's blessing as we walk past them on the other side of the road. We must love them as Christ has loved us, mercifully, generously, sacrificially. We must be doers of the word and not merely hearers. We must obey the royal law of love. Because to claim to have faith, but to have no deeds, is utterly foolish. Because a faith that is unaccompanied by action is dead. So let's be like Abraham, like Rahab. Let's ask the Lord by his spirit, to grant us true, living, busy, active, powerful, loving, generous (laughs) faith. Do you believe in Jesus? Show me. Show me in your life of love. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, forgive us, please, for our selfishness, our tight-fistedness. Forgive us, please, for 
all the arguments we trot out as reasons for us not to be generous and loving. Father, we are so grateful, so grateful that Jesus, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Father, we want to be people who are fully persuaded by the promise of the gospel. Fully persuaded, Father, that in Jesus we have everything that we need. Fully persuaded, Father, of your love for us. And Father, we want to be people shaped by the love of Jesus. We thank you for the presence of your spirit in our lives and for the fruit of his ministry in our life. And Father, we ask that through him and through your word, you might make us to be people of love and mercy. Father, from this morning, we don't want to hear this word merely. We want to do it. But we need your help. So please help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.